I can jump down much easier from right here than I can from up there, so just know that right there. If you have your Bible, we be in James chapter 2 today. If you're new here today, we've been going through the book of James. We're about in our fourth week in, and we're going to continue on up through probably spring break and just systematically walking through the book, because he just kind of talks about the testing of our faith, what that looks like. And as I was thinking about that, I began to realize how much I hate tests. I don't know about you. I'm so grateful I'm not in college, in high school, or anything anymore, or taking any more collegiate classes, because I hate tests. <laughs> There's nothing more stressful, I think, than knowing, man, I got this coming up. What's the teacher want? What's on there? I don't know about you. I remember for me uh, in college, the, the worst test I've ever taken was philosophy. Anybody like philosophy in the room, like philosophy classes? There's something wrong with you, I'm just going to say right now. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm praying, I'm praying that spirit comes out of you, whatever it is. But I remember taking a philosophy class. It, it, was, it was terrible. And I had Dr. Rinnauer, a great teacher. Uh, he was a chaplain in the Army and stuff. And I remember him teaching one of our classes, and he would just come in and just say the weirdest stuff. We spent all class studying about a philosophical argument. And then he'd come in and go, ah, and they found out it wasn't right. And just, it was worthless. But we'd study it anyways. And I remember one day he came in talking some philosophy, mumbo-jumbo, whatever stuff, and he, he starts talking about how, uh, you know, he says, you know, people say stuff without understanding the meaning behind it. For example, they say, well, this, you know, it tastes chalky. He goes, how do you know what chalky is until you try it? And right then he grabs a piece of his chalk, pops in his mouth, begins to chew it, and goes, hmm, that's what chalk tastes like. And I'm like, this dude is crazy. But I took his class, and we had four tests in the entire class. And I remember my first three tests I take before our big final, I bombed every one. Not a single one did I make over a 50 on it. And I remember sitting with him, going to his class, and I said, Dr. Ridnour, I said, I I'm not a math major, but I know I'm not passing your class. Like, how, how do I get through this? And I'm just thinking, I don't understand anything you're talking I didn't tell him that, but I'm thinking, I don't understand anything you're saying. I don't understand you. You kind of freak me out a little bit. But I remember we get to end, he said this. He goes, well, the way I see it, he said, if you make an A on your final, you'll get an A in the class. If you make a B, you'll get a B. If you make a C, you get a C, and so on and so on. And I said, I don't know how your philosophy works, but I'm going with it. Glad to say I got a C, uh, but nonetheless, I get it. You know, C's get degrees. I, I made it through. Can, can you, real quick, do you have anything that just came back to your mouth thinking about tests? But would you do me this favor with the people you're around? Would you answer that question? What is the worst test you've ever failed? If you've never failed a test, then you know what? Just don't share. No one wants to talk to you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, take a second. What is the worst test you've ever failed? If you're a student in the room and it was this week, I'm sorry to bring up these sore wounds right now in front of your parents. But take a second. Answer that question. Some of you have to remember way far back, I know. But what was the worst test you've ever failed? Take a second and do that. All right, we'll cut it off so I can uh, get away from all the kids who are in this unbearable question from their parents right now. We'll try to move on. Thank you. I see some heads nodding. Let's move on, Eric. 
hey, as you think about the test you take, I, I have to ask you this question. Was it because... Was it because you were not prepared for it? Was that the reason you did so terribly on it? Or because you didn't know what was going to be covered? Which was it, as you think about? I asked because, honestly, with this philosophy, guys, I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what was going to be covered. None of it. I had college professors that you just, it, it was a guessing game to show up and see what was going to be on the test. You had no idea. And then I had other college professors, like I think of uh, one guy named Dr. McWilliams, who I took, like, bib ethics and stuff like that. And he would sit you down before and explain exactly what was going to be on the test and give you a sheet. And guess what? That's exactly what was going to be on the test. And I loved it. <laughs> and when you said you could sit and enjoy the class and stuff and everything. The connection I'm trying to make is this, is we've been studying through the book of James. And James kind of comes to this point of what's going to be on the test. James, if you, I don't want to go and recap everything we've been through, but James is a book about any of you who are going through a hard time. And you're asking why. Like, why is this happening? Like, I don't understand this. And so the first week he talks about how, man, hey, listen, difficult times, tests, and trials in life serve a purpose. And so what you're going through is not a waste. And then he talks about, he goes into talking about temptations, said that trials and temptations are different. When you're going through difficult times, I get it, it's hard, but, but don't fall into temptation and then blame it on God whenever you give in to sin. That's not God's fault, ultimately. And he comes last week, we talked about, listen, if you need to know how to make it through life in hard times, you just need to follow the manual. You just need to read the book. The answers are in there. And and the rest of the book, he goes on to how to tell if your faith is real. Because he says, listen, there's inconsistencies when it comes to people who sang their Christians versus what is actually being exposed in their life. And to me, the entire rest of the book, he does these tests to say, here's how you can tell whether your faith is real, whether it's genuine. And the first today we're going to look at, he's talking about test number one, how well you treat others. That's the first test. Next week, we'll look at, he'll talk about what has your faith done. That's test number two. Does your faith actually do anything? And then a week after, he'll talk about by what you say, your words. What does your heart say? That's another test you'll see. He talks about after that, test number four, like, what's your attitude? How's your attitude? And he keeps going all through the book about these tests that you take. And so as we continue to cover through the book of James, the question you need to ask at the end of each section is, how am I doing on this test? But with the test he's showing me, because what I think is true of the Christian faith versus what God is actually testing me on might be two different things. In other words, you can spend your entire life doing this. And the reality is God cares about this. Do you get where I'm going? And James is a beautiful book because it it lays it out simply. If you you think you're doing everything right, but yet you fail this test, guess what? You you have failed God's test of what genuine faith should look like. That's why I love James. Because if you're ever struggling, I don't know, James just lays it out in a very practical way. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll, we'll try to read it. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is where we'll get to. And we've recapped what's going on. And, and to connect this bridge of where James goes, last week he talks about you just need to follow the manual. And he ends with a, a statement, verse 26 through 27 of chapter 1, that connects the rest of the book. Because read what he says in chapter 1, verse 26. So just go back a little bit. He says, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. You see, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. 
He's starting to bridge the gap of what he's saying. Listen, you follow the manual. Now when you know what's right and you can see it, here's certain things you start seeing. He starts this bridge, and the rest of James tells us. The big question he's asking, again, is this. Is your faith real or worthless? And so let's start with the first test on how well do you treat others for his first test. So let's read chapter 2, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, like how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. Like, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting or church dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and yet another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you, you can stand over there or just sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show or expose that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But, but you dishonor the poor. Like, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal laws found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the law except one is guilty as a person who has broken all the laws of God. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, guess what? You've still broken the law. So, so whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Let's talk about this. Let's look through it, and we're going to break it down, see what James is talking about this first test. And he starts in verse 1 kind of exposing something. Look what he says. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, yet there's an inconsistency with how you treat other people? You show discrimination. You show favoritism or partiality. That word literally means to accept the face. In other words, you accept just the face of other people. You see them, guess all their merit and their, their capabilities by what they look like, and yet other people you discriminate against. He's saying, listen, if you love God, you will love others. The big idea he's going to get to that we're going to unpack all through this is that gospel love that you'll see, people who have experienced the gospel love of Jesus Christ, is without strings attached. There is no condition to their love. They'll freely give it to anybody and whoever they can because they've experienced themselves. He ultimately says this, if you, if you love God, you will love others. The reality is the inverse is true as well. If you don't love others, the reality is most likely you don't really love God. That's a test that you'll have. You can say, I love God, but if I hate this person, there's something inconsistent in your life, in your speech, in your attitude going on. There is something missing. He would even attest this in another book of the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Listen to what it says. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. Like he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. It's a command Jesus would give. It's a command that you'd see in Leviticus. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, you would see this idea of you love me, you're going to love others. There's inconsistency in our language. 
And so he talks about that, and so in verse 2 through 4, he then goes on to give an example, a case scenario, like, well, imagine this. And what's interesting, we don't know if this is a real-life scenario that's actually taking place in a church, or he's making up a hypothetical situation. But nonetheless, he makes up a case of what's going on. In verse 2 to 4, he says, for example, like, suppose someone comes into your meeting. That word meeting is ecclesia. It's a word used all throughout the scriptures as church. So imagine someone comes into the assembly, comes into the house of God, comes into the church, and you see them. And one person, what do they do? They walk in, and what do they have? Fancy clothes. My daughter has a thing saying that. We talk about going to a restaurant. We say, where do you want to go eat? And she goes, McDonald's or, or Fazoli's. And we're like, let's go eat somewhere nice. And she says all the time, Hallie goes, I don't like to eat fancy places. I said, what's fancy? She said, well, fancy decorations and when they put a napkin in your lap. I'm like, so, so I don't know if that's what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are dressed in fine linens and, and wore the nicest clothes. He even talks about those who wore gold ring. Literally, that means gold-fingered. It means they are, they are dripping with swagger. Sorry, let me take it to a different language. He is covered with bling. Sorry, not. he's wearing a lot of jewelry that's really nice to wear, okay? I've just reached all age groups, I think, right there with that one. If you don't understand, back in this time and culture, listen, people who wore fancy rings, nice jewelry, this was a sign of nobility, people who probably had power or prestige, even to the point that people would go and rent out jewelry to wear just to give the persona and belief that they were wealthy. If you don't think that doesn't happen today, you're fooling yourself. I have a relative that is a police officer down in Dallas, Texas, and he said it's fun to go to certain areas and he'll drive by and run the tags of all these nice Lamborghinis, Ferraris, and very nice cars. And everything comes back from rental places where people are trying to drive around and give the impression that they are loaded with money and they're somebody when in reality they're not. He says, listen, you come and see this person walk into the church and they're wearing the splendid, magnificent thing. And then someone else walks in that stinks. They haven't got the nicest thing. They are not well kept. They seem like they don't have two pennies to their name maybe. And yet you look at the wealthy one, you go, hey, here's the best seat in the house. This is where the heater draws directly on you to keep you warm during service. And it's closest to the coffee and the drink area. And the other guy says, hey, listen, here's a great spot on the floor. Why don't you go sit back there because we don't want to smell you and we don't want to see you. He says, listen, there is a problem there. You're paying attention to one and not the other. I love that term to pay. Pay is literally to give something up. I'm paying something with the hope of getting in return. Understand this, the problem isn't their attire, it's what it symbolizes. The reality is he's saying this, like you see people who are wealthy and you think, man, how nice would it be if they would come here, man? So sometimes churches do this, man, if we could just get them to come to our church, I bet they would tithe well, man, I bet they, I bet they would, man, it would be really nice to have them at our church. And we begin to judge other people and look at them and go, huh, man, they got a lot of problems, they got a lot of issues. Maybe they don't quite fit. And we begin to say, well, what do they have for me? I remember when Emily and I were uh, fresh in college and we were talking about getting married. And we began to go look at rings. And as college kids, you don't dress nice. Anything. It's sweats and T-shirts and good luck if you're wearing anything but a hat, right? And we go to a certain jewelry store. I'll remain anonymous in, in Oklahoma. And we go there and we walk in and, and they did not give us the time or day. We literally stood there as people, person after person, came in and they began to help them with the jewelry and help them figure out what they wanted. And we stood there like, hello, ding, ding. And, and literally one lady finally comes and says, oh, I'm sorry, are you looking for a restroom? We're like, no, we're wanting to buy an engagement ring. And they go, okay. And they set us aside. We got so frustrated, we got up and walked out thinking, man, we're not going to have any luck. And we went to another jewelry store across the street and we walked in. 
They immediately saw us and came and said, hey, what are you looking for? We're looking to get married and we want to look at rings. And they set us down. They said, would you like a Coke or a drink? Which at that time is a call to you. I'm like, yeah, free Cokes, awesome. And they treated us so nice and so much respect and just loved us. And we told them, said, well, I can't tell you how nice this is because we were just across the street and they treated us so terribly. And they said, you're not the first time this happened. They actually said a few years back, a group named Boys to Men, which is an all-African-American group, came to Oklahoma, and they were dressed not in ways that they thought they should. And they walked into the store, and they kicked them out and said, you don't belong here. So Boys to Men, to show them, went across the street to this store and each bought about $500,000 worth of watches to show them up and called the local newspapers to tell them. I tell you that because we see this all over the place. People judge and see people, and we make, decide their merit by the way they look. And what's sad is it penetrates the church, too. He's like, it has no place for this. We should never show or give more attention to people all because we hope to get something back in return. Think about us. Let me ask you just to just bring this back home a little bit more to us. Like when it comes, let's just say in the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, who do you spend the most of your time with at church? Who, let me say it like this. Who gets the best of you? Like who are the marginalized in our church? You might be good about going saying hi to people and doing the precursor of what I'm supposed to. I got your name, I, I, sh- I shaked your hand, and I told you where everything's at, and I go back and do my life. But reality, do we treat the same way the people that we truly are close to, truly are tight with? Listen, understand this. When it comes to this, like no one should ever be alone at church. No one should ever sit alone. No one should ever be by themselves if we truly love them without condition. If I were to walk into a place, what would I want people treating me with? The same respect and dignity that I'd hope I'd give back to them. And he says there's inconsistencies. You see, I go back again. What, why is that? Because gospel love is without strings attached. When you truly experience the love of Christ, there's something that penetrates and changes your heart. He says it shouldn't work. And so then he goes on in verse 5 and on and begins to give three different arguments on why favoritism is absurd. I love James. He does this a couple times. We'll see again next week. He uses just different kind of arguments. Like if you want to come where you come from a theological argument, come just from a practical argument, whatever it is. And he does the exact same thing here. He gives three different arguments. The first one in verse 5 through 6 is a theological argument. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to like, be rich in faith? He says this, listen, always like, God doesn't pursue the well-to-do people. If anything, you see all throughout, a theme throughout Scripture, he uses the marginalized, the insignificant, the people that are nobodies. The Jewish people were the most marginalized people throughout history he used. David was the most marginalized person in his own family that his dad didn't even see him well enough to come into the house to be considered one of the people. Over and over again, God uses these people. He's like, your own, what you're doing here doesn't line up with the character of God. Like, and the question you have to ask is, like, does God like poor people better? Is that what it is? The answer is no. Let me just tell you, no, by no means. But often you see throughout Scripture the poor are generally more apt to put their faith in God because they see their need. Where wealthy often look at themselves and look what I've accomplished. He's saying it doesn't line up with the character of God and the plans of God when you choose the, insig- uh, the more significant over the insignificant. It, it questions this. It questions if you really even know God at all. You spend enough time with someone, you can speak. I know they would say this. I, I, I spend enough time with them, I know what they would do. You were asking about my wife, I could tell you what she would like to do, what she would like to eat, what, what, what things, what hobbies she's enjoying. You asked me if she wants to go do No, I can tell you, knowing my wife, she would not know, want to do this. Can you say the same about God when you act this way? In other words, let's dumb it down. It's as simple as this. 
what would God do? If God were in our church right now, what would he do? The people are in here. And so he says, listen, theologically, it doesn't line up. Not only theologically, he goes on verse 6 through 7, the next part, he says, logically, just, just take God out of it. Logically, it makes no sense why you would do this. But look at that part of it in verse 6. He says, you dishonor the poor. He says, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Like, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? It makes no practical sense because he's saying the wealthy are the ones that are making your life miserable. In this time of culture, if you had the money, you could literally buy the court system and win any appeal you wanted to. They would literally take people to court that could not afford to buy, sue them and say, this land really belongs to my family, and take it right out from beneath them because they had the wealth to do it. And they were doing this all the time. Imagine someone who has made your life miserable, and you come in and go, oh, maybe they might start treating me nice. And he's like, this makes no practical sense. They're the ones persecuting. They're the ones suing you. Not just that, they're the ones making fun of God. They're the one blaspheming his name, and you're begging for their attention. This is insanity. Ultimately, he's saying it questions your intelligence. It questions your loyalty to God. It makes no practical sense. I love a commentary called Constable Note that I I look at often. He says this. He said, how inconsistent is it to despise one's friends and honor one's foes? Let me say it again. How inconsistent is it to despise one's friends and honor one's foes? And he says, this is exactly what you're doing. And so he gives a theological argument. He gives just a plain logical argument. But then he goes back and he says, let's just give you the biblical argument. Let me just tell you what the Bible says. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the law as found in scriptures, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. So it's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Matthew would say it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. He says, but if you favor someone, people over others, you're committing a sin. You're breaking law. He's saying, in other words, this. You're commanded to love everyone. And when you show favoritism and partiality, it's a sin. It's a sin. You're directly disobeying what God has told you to do. It questions your obedience. And Jesus, time and time again, says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll obey me. Now, some of you be looking at, well, is it really wrong to break one law? I mean, I make one mistake. I mean, nobody's perfect, right, except Jesus. But, like, no one does everything right. But he goes in the back and says, yes, you can't just ignore this one part. He says, for the person who keeps all the laws except one, guess what? He's guilty of breaking all of God's laws. He used this illustration. He says, some of you, uh, you must not commit adultery. Others say you must not murder. So if you murder someone and do not commit adultery, guess what? You've still broken the law. Fudging in one place is still wrong. I think in college, when Emily and I first got married, we lived in a house that, uh, you know, was as best as we could afford. We, we gutted and remodeled it, and, and I remember the house, it, it breathed really bad, air came in and out, and we had bugs, and we kept trying to figure out stuff. And I remember one time, I pulled an all-nighter studying for a test because I was a model student in college, and so I pulled all-nighter studying. And I remember sometime in the middle of the night, I get hungry, and we had pizza in the, in the kitchen. Why? Because I'm a youth pastor. That's what we always eat. There's always pizza in my fridge. And so I had pizza, and so I go in there and open it up, and I open it up, and, and lo and behold, there's some bugs in the pizza. I'm like, this is disgusting. 
I'm tired. It's freezing cold out. Like, literally, it's a cold night outside. So I grab, look in the cabinet, and I find a dang of raid. And so I spray some on the pizza, and I close it up. And I'm like, I'm not going outside. It's late. I'm tired. So I grab the can of raid, and I stick it on top of the pizza. I go take my test the next day, and I come home, and I walk in, and Emily's there. And I said, hey, what are we doing for lunch today? She goes, oh, nothing. She goes, I've already eaten. I go, what would you eat? She goes, well, I had some pizza. I said, pizza? Where would you get pizza? She goes, in the kitchen, yeah, from last night. And I go, and so I immediately walk in there, and I pick up the can of raid, and I begin reading like this. She goes, what are you doing? I said, nothing. <laughs> and then I call my mom, who's a PA, and I said, Suppose someone were to actually eat some pizza with raid on it. Like what? And Emily begins, what happened? I was like, well, there was bugs. And she's like, why didn't you throw it out? I'm like, why did you eat pizza with a can of raid on top of it? And still the argument goes on to this day. I try to convince her. I don't think I sprayed all the pizza. I think I sprayed this over here. And she goes, some of it might have got over. Guess what? Was it a big deal that a few small particles of raid got on her pizza? To her, yes. You see, even a little bit taints the whole thing. Please don't bring it up because we don't want to fight on the way home. <laughs> and don't add to the argument because I still think I'm right. <laughs> Here's the thing. J- just a little bit taints the whole thing. If I give you a piece of pizza and I'm like, it may or may not have got some spattle of a uh, raid on it, would you eat it? You'd probably go, I'm good. It's just a little bit. No, it- it's enough. It's the same with God. We can't sit here and go, you know, it's not, not a big deal. No, it is. And so you go through all these arguments he, got, he gives, and so the question comes, how do I overcome these tendencies? If the reality is you're strong, like, I, I'll be honest, I, I show favoritism. It's hard for me. I know I don't do what I should. Well, I love it. He continues to give a guide. The answer he gives in verse 12 and on is this, is, is you choose a better guide for your life. Look what he says. He says, so whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law. And so when you look at some practical application, here's the thing, with choosing a better guide, be guided by Scripture. Listen, when you don't know what to do, like, listen, what does God's word say? So it says, love other people. Oh, okay. L- love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. What does that mean? I would rather err on the side of doing too much than err on the side of doing too little. Go above and beyond. What does it look like to truly be obedient to Scripture? What it says. Let Scripture guide your habits rather than what you want. Like, at some point, understand this. You're going to have to come to terms that what I want to do will most often conflict with what I need to do or what I should do. I still fight that sinful nature inside me. And so I have to say, what does Scripture say? How am I going to be obedient to it? I love, if you ever want to read a fun text, is Romans chapter 17, verse 14 through 25. Paul goes through this whole thing of like, man, the thing I want to do, I can't find myself to do. I keep doing the wrong thing. The thing I don't want to do, I keep doing that thing over and over. And I keep trying to stop doing the thing I don't want to do, but yet I can't find myself doing it. I want to do the right thing, but I, it's just, he says do at least a hundred times, it seems, in that short text. And the whole thing is he says, listen, I'm constantly fighting this sinful nature in me. But thanks be to God that I can't conquer it because what he's done on the cross is how he comes to the end of it. At some point, you have to move past it. And you have to say, what, what is the right thing I should do? And you have to begin feeding that thing. I can't think of my own life in a situation. I had this exact situation where I knew the right thing, what I wanted to do, but what I knew I should have done. And Emily and I went on our honeymoon, and on our last day there, we had just enough money to go eat one last nice meal. And as I'm walking by, this, there's people everywhere, and yet there's this homeless man sitting right there, and for whatever reason, he makes eye contact with me. I have $150 in my pocket for us to go eat, man, our, our last meal. We've eaten nice all week. I can't act like we haven't had nice things. 
He walks right up to me. I don't know why he walks past all these people and walks right up to me and says, Sir, do you have any money, man? I'm just, I just love a meal. In the moment saying, I was like, I, I want to, uh, so I told him, I said, no, I don't have any cash. Sorry, get away from me. And I walked off. And I remember walking off thinking, you know what, God will forgive me. It's all good. And I remember this text in Scripture that says, don't forget to show kindness to strangers because you never know when you're doing it. You might be entertaining angels. And it was that thing, like, I don't know what that was. I'm like, man, right there, I had an opportunity. I know God was using that to test me, to get my attention. And guess what? I failed that test miserably. Emily and I had been fine with McDonald's that day to know we'd give someone a meal. But I walked away from it. When you know the right you should do, follow through with what Scripture tells you to do. He says, not just be guided by Scripture, but look at the last part he says. He says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. He says, listen, if you've been shown mercy, you need to show the same amount of mercy. And we say this, you need to be guided by grace. The same amount of grace has been shown to you, you need to show to others. You might say, well, how much is that? I don't understand. Listen to what Ephesians would say. Ephesians chapter 7, verse um, sorry, two. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. See, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point at us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this because it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can do good things that he planned for us long ago. In other words, you had nothing to offer God. There were absolutely zero strings attached. That there is nothing good before Christ that you had to say, God, look what I got, that he would want. But in his grace, in his mercy, in his unconditional love, he set it all aside and said, listen, I give myself completely to you, knowing that you have nothing good to give me in return. And showed us grace, and yet when we don't show other people grace, it questions whether we've experienced that grace in our life. Or as Warren Wearsby would say, Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. Gospel love is without strings attached. And so let me just ask you, who have you loved without an agenda? Even friends who are super close with the reality is there's an agenda there. Let's be honest. I want them to show me the same kind of love. I want them to show them the same kind of thing. And the moment they quit, that relationship begins to die, doesn't it? Like, who have you honestly loved without an agenda? Right, here's another way to say it. Who has loved you without an agenda? Who has showed you grace and mercy and love in your life? Hopefully you can say Jesus Christ, but who else has been that model example for you? I'll give you one last testimony in my life that, man, is a reason that probably that played a huge influence of why I'm here today. It was eighth grade, a young girl named Maddie Siner. I was in eighth grade. I was, I've told you before, I was a short, fat, awkward kid. I was scared. I would never, I'd walk the corners of the halls. So I didn't want to talk to anybody. 
I just wanted to be a shadow. I did not want any, I was so insecure in who I was. Maddie Steiner was the most popular girl in the world, in the school. Everyone liked her, everyone wanted to be around her, everyone knew her. Beautiful girl, all the guys wanted to date her. In eighth grade science class, I get stuck at a desk right next to Maddie Steiner. Maddie Steiner was an amazing woman of God. She loved the Lord. And I remember sitting in class, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just trying to like, don't, don't, don't draw, don't, don't talk to Maddie, don't do anything to embarrass yourself, Eric. And I remember the first day of class, she's like, hey, you're Eric, right? And I just remember like, how does she know my name? How does she know who I am? Every day in class, she spent time just loving on me, pouring like, hey. And she began to invite me to come sit with her group at lunch. She sat with the popular group. I'm, I'm this uh, Christian kids, all these kids. She began to invite me. I had nothing to offer her. I'll tell you what, I had everything to lose for her. She could lose reputation, be stuck. Man, you're with the fat, awkward kid there. What's going on with you? She brought me into her friend group. She began to invite me to her D-Now weekends with her youth group. She began talking to me about her relationship with the Lord. She began showing me love and merit. Man, she, she brought me in so much. And it made me interested. What, what's this God she's talking about? And I want to know more about him. And, and I'll tell you right now, if Maddie were to hear this, she would have no idea what I'm talking about. She'd forget it all. It just came natural to her. But as a grown man now, I'm like, man, that, that plays such a role in my life. Someone just showing unconditional love. And the beauty of it is this. Listen, that unconditional love didn't point me back to her. It pointed me back to Christ. I tell him, I, mean, I want to know why is she so different. And she would talk about her love for God and what he's done in her life. And began to fuel interest. I, I want whatever you have. Now, now you got a 35-year-old guy standing in front of you today telling you a story about what a young girl did to him in eighth grade and just showed an amazing love. It's amazing what happens when we begin to model the same thing. But let, me, let me ask you this. My last question for you. What is your grade you made on James' first test? Let me say it like this. What if it were just pass-fail? Don't give yourself a B, a C, a D-. minus. If it were simply a pass-fail, how did you do? We, we have the best gift known to mankind the world's ever seen. It's a loving Savior that died on the cross for our sin that showed us unmerited grace that we never deserved. And the only thing he ever asked to return is this, go do to others as I've done to you. And yet at church, we, we fail miserably. Church would look so much different if just people come in like, man, I don't know what it is, but there's something about those people. I walked in from day one, they've shown love that I can't even begin. It, it's powerful, I can feel it. When we point to Christ, man, what would happen? I believe baptisms would be happening every Sunday because people want what we got. It wouldn't be about us. I think people would be coming in droves. We wouldn't have to put advertisements in the community. Why? Because people want what we have. Not about us because what Christ has done in us because we're living it out. When we say go and be the church, that's what it means. Go and live out what Christ has done in your life. I think there's a reason James uses treating others as his first example because that's the hardest one to get down. I can do a whole lot of stuff. When it really comes to loving others, that is difficult. But when you've really experienced the love of Christ, man, you finally get it. And so I just, I just want to pray for you. If you've been convicted like I have, man, just say, God, use me. Just simple as that. God, use me today. God, use me next Sunday when someone comes. Man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show them unconditional love. Somebody in your life you have. May, maybe today you need to experience that because you haven't experienced the love of Christ. And today you need to accept that gift. 
I pray that you do. Would you pray with me? Father God, I know you're good, I know you're loving, and I know, God, I know you don't, you, you haven't set up a test for us to fail, you want us to pass. God, I know we've measured ourselves on so many other things, whether it be church attendance, whether it be how often we read our Bible, whether it be how much we tithe, how much we serve, whatever it is, but God, your, your first test for us is always, how much do we love others? God, convict our hearts on areas that we know we should strive better for. Help us understand that the solution is not doing more right, but just getting more into you. God, I know there's someone that sound my voice right now that, that need to respond just from conviction of God. I'm going to give myself wholly to you. And we're going to have elders and their wives up front where they can maybe just need to come be prayed for. Hey, I just, I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to start doing better on the test. God, I know there's some that sound my voice that th this whole idea of, of just unmerited love and grace and favor is completely foreign to them, God. I know that. They have no idea how to do this because they haven't experienced you. And God, today might be the day they need to come and give their life to you or maybe they thought they've given their life and they just need validation. Hey, I just need prayer to understand this grace he's talking about more. God, I pray that they would get up and come talk to one, someone that can help them. God, help us to be a church not known for what we do, our programs, our activities, our me, Grant, anything. But God, let us be a church that's known for you. I pray at the end of my life, people would not talk about me like Maddie Steinman said, point back to you, say, you know what? I, I know that Eric pointed me back to Jesus. God, I pray that my life would do that. Help me to do better, God. God, thank you most of all for loving me even though I still fail. Help me just accept your grace daily. Jesus, now I pray. Amen. Maybe you need to respond. If you do, we got elders. We got JD and Amy. They're up here. They'd love to pray with you. We got Bradley over here. We got Pete in the back. We, we would love to pray with you, encourage you, introduce you to my friend named Jesus. He's an awesome guy. So if that's you, I encourage you to, to come talk to one of us. Discreetly walk around. You can go to the back and talk to Pete, whatever. But don't be ashamed to get up. Just respond. So with that being said, would you stand? And let's sing together. If God's leading you to respond, I pray that you do that. I'm caught up in your presence. And I just want to sit here. 